our God and our Father, thank you again for bringing us into your presence. Lord, that uh, you are our God and our Saviour. We thank you for all things. And now as we open your word, that you will be with our speaker this morning. That we will be encouraged and learn just that little bit more from you. Thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the last eight years that I've known Susanna, we've been tramping many times. We've been tramping around Mount Taranaki and up Karioi and lots of different mountains. But if you ask us, what was that tramp like? You might get two different accounts of what that tramp was like. <laughs> I can remember some things and she can remember other things. And you get the history from different perspectives. And you know what? Today, we're looking at a part of history that's recorded in the Bible. And I know what some people may be thinking. Well, you know, history's always said from someone's perspective. History is always just written from the perspective of the writer. So therefore, um, you know, what, why should we look at history? It's not very objective. It's not plain. Um, the only thing about history is it just come, always comes from someone's perspective. Whoever writes history writes what they think it was like. And that is true. Whoever writes history writes exactly what they think it was like. And, you know, even today, many scientists and historians are writing about the history of the world in ways that they think it was like. Because they believe that there is no God. And they believe that there's nothing beyond the physical, what we can really see and touch. And so they write about the history of the world as though there is no God. Some historians and scientists believe that the human race is getting better and that because we have more technology, that means we're becoming better people. But is that really true? The world calls itself postmodern, as if we know so much better now than we did in the 50s and 60s. Because we're now not modern, we're postmodern, we're beyond modern. We've got, gotten better somehow. And yet, there are still wars, there are still crimes, there are still lots of bad things going on. It's true that if you look at the history of almost any nation, well, every nation that I've heard of, the, uh, are my slides coming up, sorry? The history of those nations are usually uh, written by the kings, especially in Bible times. In Bible times, the only people with the money and the interest to record history were, were the kings. They employed people to write down what happened. And because of that, they usually emphasized the victories of their nations. <laughs> when you look at the history of, say, um, Babylon or Egypt, they say, weren't we so great, we won all of these wars. And they don't mention the times that they were defeated. So um, this is often the way that history is written. But the history in the Bible is completely different. The history in the Bible is so strange. Yes, the kings were the ones who had the money and the time to get history written down, but they wrote the history of their nation's failure. In the Bible, we have the history of God's faithfulness in the face of Israel's failure to follow God. And the Bible is history. It's written from a particular perspective. History, it is history written from God's perspective. And today, as we're um, in the book of 1 Kings, 
you can see that this is written from a perspective. There are lots of things that we're not told. We're not told about the great buildings they built. We're not told about lots of the wars they did, they engaged in. We're not told so many significant things that we read about in non-Bible literature from the time. But we always read in the Bible of the things that impacted Israel's relationship with God. We read about whether they obeyed the Lord. We read about the building of the temple. We read, we read about the times that they disobeyed God and followed idols and how that impacted their relationship with God. So this history that we're looking at today is important. It's history from God's perspective. And it's also, in a sense, our history. Because it's the history of God reaching out to bring Jesus Christ to redeem us. It's the history of God showing what he's like, showing his character. Sorry, back to slide two. Um, God showing what his, he's like, his character, um, and um, through how he act, acted with Israel. When we look at this, we can see, what is God like? How does God act when people are unfaithful? How does God act when people are faithful? And why is God doing this? God was working through history to bring people to himself and ultimately to bring Jesus Christ to redeem us. And um, so as we look at um, kings, we need to keep in mind that this is why we have this in, in the Bible. So let's just remind ourselves briefly of the history up until the point in First Kings that we're going to do. So remember that God created everything good. In the beginning with Adam and Eve, God created everything good. But Adam and Eve, the representatives of the human race, they disobeyed God and it broke that relationship. After they disobeyed God, then people and things started to die. The ground was cursed and the whole of creation was just frustrated because of sin. But God promised that one day, Eve would, a descendant of Eve would crush Satan's head and bring victory. Of all Adam's kids, God chose Seth's family line to be the one that would bring this descendant, this deliverer, the one who would crush Satan's head. And God made an official agreement, a promise, a covenant promise with Abraham saying, my intention is to bless all the families of the earth through your descendants. So this is God's intention. So through um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came the nation of Israel. They had a special relationship with God for this one purpose, so that they could bring God's blessing to all the families of the earth. And, um, of course, ultimately and eventually through Jesus Christ. And they were slaves in Egypt, but God rescued them and took them to the land of Canaan, and, uh, which was the promised land. And when they reached the land of Canaan, they renamed it Israel. So the Israel map up, please. So um, while they were in Israel, they had no king, and they all did whatever they thought was right. But in doing that, they turned away from, from God. So he allowed them to be invaded. He allowed other nations to come in. And um, every time they did that, God allowed that. They turned back to God, and God sent them a judge to rescue them. But eventually, they said, God, we want a king. We need a king. So God chose Saul. But Saul disobeyed God. And um, Saul was unfaithful. So then God chose David who served God really well. 
God promised David that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne and rule forever. And David's first descendant was Solomon, but Solomon was not faithful to God. Solomon disobeyed God. So when Solomon's son became king, God split this nation of Israel in two. And the top part was called Israel, and the bottom part was called Judah. Okay, so the top part was called Israel, the bottom part was called Judah. So today we're looking at 1 Kings. Kings tells us the history of, of the kings who ruled in Israel and Judah, those two halves of the country. And in particular today we're looking at a king named Ahab, and he was a king who ruled in Israel, the top part of the country. So um, that's, that's the one we're looking at today. So we're looking at King Ahab. He ruled in Israel. He lived around 850 years before Jesus came. And he lived about 100 years or 150 years after David became king. So um, let's just have a brief look at um, some major events of Ahab's reign. Um, basically, um, Ahab, he followed idols, but God sent prophets to say, no, we need to follow the Lord. And so um, we're told about the prophet, and then there's a conflict. Um, and then there's, there's, we're told more about the prophet, and then Ahab went to war with Syria. And then um, Ahab didn't obey God during that Syrian war, so God condemned Ahab through a prophet. And in the end, King Ahab repented. He turned back to God, and God said, okay, I won't destroy you in this generation. And then um, there was an argument with the prophet Micaiah, and eventually Ahab went to war with Aram, and he, Ahab died. So that's a, a very brief history of just the things that happened. But now let's look at God's perspective on what happened, so we can learn what God wants us to know about this. So um, you can look it up on Chonak, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, that's worshipping an idol, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. And uh, later on, we also read this of Ahab. No one else so completely sold himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. So, um, just to, to recap God's perspective then in the, the next slide, what precisely did Ahab do wrong? Ahab refused to listen to the prophets. Ahab called Elijah my enemy. He said, you troubler of Israel. And, and he, um, he said of the prophet Micaiah, I hate him. <laughs> Ahab went along with Naboth's murder. Ahab wanted a vineyard. Jezebel said, I'll get you your vineyard. She arranged for this guy Naboth to be killed and murdered. And then she said to Ahab, by the way, this vineyard's yours now because Naboth is dead. And Ahab was like, sweet, I can go get my vineyard. And he went off and did that. Ahab um, 
a lot of the wicked things Ahab did were because he made himself a slave pretty much to his wife Jezebel, who worshipped the idol Baal. And as you look through, um, if, if you read through these six chapters that we're covering today, you'd find that a lot of the time it's Jezebel who plans and Ahab who, who works it out. After all, it was not Ahab who killed Naboth, it was Jezebel, and Ahab went along with it. It was not Ahab who said to Elijah, I'm going to kill you. That was Jezebel who said to Elijah, I'm going to kill you, and Ahab went along with it. Ahab definitely made himself, um, he, the Bible says he sold himself to do evil under the influence of his wife. So um, another thing that we're told is that um, because of his wife Jezebel, Ahab worshipped the idol Baal and caused the whole of Israel to worship Baal too. So this is God's perspective on Ahab's reign and rule. And um, at the very end, in uh, chapter 22, um, it says, Now for the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that Ahab built, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So obviously there's all these other important, great achievements that Ahab did, but God says, they're not important for us to know today. What's important for us to know is these things that God has mentioned. So, how can we learn from such ancient history about an evil king? How could we make an application for us today from such a bad history? Well, this, um, we could say, don't be like Ahab. Um, after all, if we're not going to be like Ahab, we should not refuse to listen to God's word. Don't refuse to listen to God's word. And um, we know that time and time again in Scripture, we are commanded to listen to the word of God. And if you think of Psalm 1, you can think of, Blessed is the man who is meditating on God's word all of the time. Um, you could say, don't be like Ahab. Don't covet, murder, or steal. And you can think of Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. Or you could think of Jesus talking on, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Definitely we should not um, covet or murder or steal. We could say, don't marry someone who will lead you away from God. That was a fundamental mistake that Ahab made. <laughs> he, um, and definitely one that, that God doesn't want us to make. Don't, don't marry yourself to anyone or anything that will lead you away from God. We could say, don't be like Ahab. Don't worship other gods. And we know that idolatry is condemned throughout the Bible. It is the Lord our God who made the earth. And he is the only one who deserves worship. And we could also say, don't command others to worship other gods. Because um, this is exactly what Ahab did. He led people away from God. And we could think of Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, where Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be, to be thrown into the depths of the sea. And certainly all of these things are things that we could say are, that are definitely taught throughout Scripture and we should, should not sin like Ahab did. But if that's all we say, we're going to run into trouble. Because if we are to be consistent in saying, don't be like Ahab, we run into a huge amount of trouble when we reach 1 Kings chapter 20 because Ahab was condemned for showing mercy to a defeated king who asked for it. Ahab was condemned, for, was told off for showing mercy to a defeated king who asked for it. 
Um, and I'll read you the verse, it's, uh, uh, verse 42 of First uh, Kings chapter 20. And the prophet says to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore it shall be your life for his life, and your people for his people. Pretty strong words for, for not showing, for showing mercy to a king who asked for it. So maybe um, another thing we could do is we could say, well, maybe we should be like Ahab when he obeyed God. Maybe we could learn from this passage that way. But if we decide to be like Ahab, we also run into trouble because when Ahab obeyed God in chapter 20, he started two wars with Syria and won them. So it's difficult to say, let's be like Ahab, because today we don't want to start wars with Syria. And, and we definitely want to show mercy. So how, how can we learn from this passage? Um, by the way, I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to um, not do the other sins that Ahab did. They're definitely taught throughout Scripture, but it's, it's incomplete. We need to look at something more. So um, if we go on to the next slide... Um, we're going to have a look at why God commanded this war and why God didn't want Ahab to show mercy to this king. And I've chosen to focus on this part of these six chapters because it's difficult, because lots of non-Christians use this to say that our God is not good, and because it's some, these, these kind of passages about war are things that trouble a lot of Christians. And it's, it's, it is, it's hard to understand. War is never good. War is so sad, and it always hurts people, and it's a tricky thing to look at. And there's lots of these war passages, and like wars that God commanded in the Bible. There's some in First Kings here. There's some in Joshua. There's some in Revelation. They're, um, they're through all over the place. So let's have a look at how, how can we understand this. So uh, if we go to the next slide. The first thing we need to notice is that war is not God's ideal. If you want to know what God really wants for humanity, don't look at war, look at Eden and heaven. When God first created the world, he created it exactly the way he wanted it, with peace and harmony between people and people, with peace and harmony between people and God. And at the end of time in heaven, God's ideal will also be this that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So God's aim and goal was to bring peace to earth. That's what he's working through history to do. And so this is not God's ideal situation. God is responding to the sin of the people at the time, and God is working to, to ultimately bring this peace to the earth. So next slide. We need to know that, um, uh, as I just said, that God was working throughout history to bless the nations, as he said to Abraham, that, um, that his descendants would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that means that God was working to bring Jesus at just the right time. So this was God's goal, to restore, to recover, to redeem. And we read this in Galatians. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, 
God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. This is, um, this is God's goal, and this is the character of our God. So uh, next slide. Another interesting thing is that David was the best king that Israel ever had before Jesus. And um, interestingly, God said to David, you can't build me a temple, you can't build me a house, because you're a man of war, you've shed so much blood. It's interesting, isn't it? God didn't want his reputation, his name, to be associated with so much violence. Next slide, please. We need to realize that the wars that are commanded by God in Scripture, including this one, are not out of favoritism for Israel or any nation or any ethnicity. It's not like God said, I'm just going to love Israel and hate all the other nations. No, God loved Israel so that they could lead the other nations to God. In fact, God said that he wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests lead people to God. Priests stand in the gap and say, Come here, sinner, and be reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus is our great high priest. That's exactly what he's done for us. So it was Israel for the sake of the nations, not Israel against the nations. And definitely throughout, um, throughout Israel's history, God promised them and God said, Israel, if you disobey me, I will bring the same judgment on you that I'm getting you to bring to other nations. And he did. And you can read Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, or you can read the, the account of the exile of, of Judah and Israel in 2 Kings 17 and chapter 25. Um, so um, definitely God was acting on the basis of his holiness, not out of favoritism for a particular nation. Uh, next slide, please. And that's, that's exactly um, what this slide is saying. No, um, just because God wanted to restore all of the nations and bring the whole world to a status of peace and to redeem everyone, that didn't mean that God had to be nice to every nation regardless of what they did. You know, the nation of Syria in our passage here in 1 Kings chapter 20, they said that they thought that God was only a tiny God, a God who was only God over the little hills of Israel and not over the plains. They thought that God was no different from the idols that, of other nations that they worshipped. And Ahab, he, him, he also followed an idol. He considered the Lord nothing. And these are uh, huge sins that God was responding to. <clears throat> God's patient, God is patient, but his patience has a limit. And when that patience reaches his limit, then God acts in judgment. And um, that's precisely what is happening here. And we can see that God's plan was to provide salvation for the nations through Christ, because God had promised David that a descendant of, one of his descendants would sit on the throne and rule forever. And at the end of Kings, we have this note of hope that a descendant of David is alive and eating at the table of the king of Babylon, even in exile. So um, these things are important to note and to understand about our passage. And God himself states his reasons for this war, these wars against Syria and also for his judgment on the king who asked for mercy. And this is what God said in chapter 20 and verse 
13. Uh, Behold, a prophet came near Ahab, the king of Israel, and said, This is what the Lord um, says. Thus says the Lord, Have you seen a great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then again, in uh, verse 28, uh, the prophet of the Lord said the same thing. A man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the, God is a God, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So by doing this, God was um, proclaiming to the nations that he indeed is, has all authority and all power and that no one can reduce him to a mere idol. No one can reduce him to a tiny God who only has a rule over a small area and isn't worth following. And um, his, those victories over Syria definitely showed them that their gods were worthless and that the Lord our God is king. And it showed Ahab the same thing, because Ahab, he, was, he didn't consider God to be the real Lord. He also uh, followed Baal. And interestingly enough, so that you will know that I am the Lord, is the reason that God gives for all of the plagues on Egypt. <laughs> and and, um, and that, that, whole, that whole epic um, in Exodus too. So um, that's also an important thing to note. Uh, next slide, please. So, having looked at that then, we can still say, well, we don't really understand why God chose to deal with the sin of idolatry in that way. We don't really understand why God commanded those wars. But, at the end of the day, we have to know, also know that he is the Lord. And we can see, and tra- we can see his mercy throughout Scripture We can see his character and the fact that he wants to bring peace to the entire earth being lived out throughout Scripture. We can see um, all of God's goodness lived throughout Scripture. And so we need to trust God and trust that the the judge of the earth will indeed do what is right. And so we might not be totally comfortable with the way that God has chosen to deal with sin, but we must know that he is the Lord and we must trust him. And um, definitely for the first readers of Kings, of First Kings, a people in exile, a people away from their homeland, they needed to know that the Lord is God over all, and they needed to know that they should indeed follow him. And how are they going to know that? How are they going to know that the Lord is God? Because he's shown it in history over and over again. And um, because he won these wars um, against uh, Syria at the time, then they can say, yeah, God is greater than those idols. Look, He won those battles then, and our idolatry is why he sent us into exile. So um, it's definitely part of the purpose of the book of Kings. And so for us too, we can take the same lesson. We can say, by looking at this, we also know that the Lord is our God, that the Lord is God. And more than just saying we shouldn't worship other gods, we have to say, this is the God we have a relationship with. This is the God whom we worship, whom we serve. And this is the God um, whom we know personally as our own Lord. Another thing to notice is that the idols were terrible things. You know, many idols, including Baal, the, the idol that Ahab worshipped in our passages today, 
The worship of Baal was just an attempt to manipulate him for the worship of his own prosperity. And it treated people just like objects. For Baal, they said, well, if you go and visit a prostitute, Baal will give you lots of crops and give you lots of wealth and give you lots of prosperity. It's a horrible religion. It's something that is, is, um, just treats people like mere objects to be used and is really selfish. But the Lord, worship of him is entirely different. To worship the Lord our God, we must love the Lord and worship him totally above all else. And we must treat people well because they're created in God's own image. So it was indeed an evil thing that God was judging. Ahab was a king who led people away from God. He made sure that people worshipped Baal. But Jesus Christ, he's the perfect king who leads us in obedience and worship of the Lord God, and he never fails. And definitely for the first readers of kings who were in exile away from their homeland, they'll be looking for someone to lead them to God. They knew that they, they could see their history of kings who failed over and over again, and they knew, ah, we actually need someone who will lead us to God. And definitely they could keep the promises that God made to David in their minds. And, of course, Jesus Christ is that perfect leader. He is that perfect king who can lead us to the Lord our God, and he never, ever fails. But wait, there's more, <laughs> and we're nearly done. Um, we read in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So if we look at how evil Ahab was, and we look at the way God judged him and how God totally um, wiped out Ahab and his, his family because of their idolatry and how God got Ahab to win those wars against another country. You might think, man, how do we find hope in so much badness that we see? So many horrible things wrong. How are we going to find hope through, these, through this, these six chapters? And if we go to the next slide, we just say, well... Because the Lord judged Ahab and triumphed over the gods, we have hope, we can trust that God will judge evil in the future. We know that God is able to judge evil because he has judged it in the past. He judged it in part uh, back then as it happened. And we know that when Jesus comes back, he will judge every wrong and he will reign forever. And so this is the awesome hope that we have. When the Lord won those battles, people could see that he is the Lord. People would acknowledge that he is the Lord. They acknowledged it on Mount Carmel. Um, they acknowledged that people would have seen it through those wars won against the nations who said, our gods are greater than yours. They would have seen it in God's judgment of Ahab and the enthronement of Jehu. And um, they could tell that the Lord is God. And you know what? We look forward to the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, for the people who were first readers of First Kings, back, in, back in, in exile, away from their homeland, they needed to know that God, is, the Lord is God, but also the countries they were in as prisoners of war, they needed to know that the Lord is God. And if you read the book of Daniel, you can see that happening in Babylon in particular. Foreign kings acknowledging that the Most High is God above all the earth. And so the events of, these events of First Kings that we read were written so that we would know that the, the Lord is God and so that the world will know that the Lord is God. 
And we have this account preserved for us so that we can spread this word that the Lord is indeed God, who will one day judge evil, the one he relate to, the one that we relate to through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, because of this, um, we, we can rejoice in looking at God's, at God's judgment and um, we can rejoice in these um, chapters that we're looking at today. And I, I really wish I had the time to read them all to you, but reading six chapters would take some time. But um, yeah, so we need to definitely spread the word that the Lord is God. And that's why idolatry is wrong. That's why we should not commit those other sins that Ahab committed. That's why we shouldn't lead other people to other gods. That's why we shouldn't um, commit idolatry or marry people who will lead us away from God or steal or covet or murder because the Lord is God and he showed it through um, these six chapters and what he did and how he related to Israel. So um, I'd like to leave you with that note of hope and with this encouragement. Know that the Lord is God and spread his word. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that you are Lord. We want to thank you that you have the power and the authority to judge evil. Lord, we want to thank you that, um, that those who oppose you and seek to just treat people like objects and to make gods of greed, of money, of prosperity, of anything, Lord, we know that your judgment is coming, and we want to thank you for that. Lord, we want to thank you for your mercy. We want to thank you that you are now withholding your judgment to give people a chance to turn to you in repentance and be saved. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your power and your wisdom and your authority that you showed in Ahab's time. Lord, there are so many um, peoples who didn't believe in you, so many peoples who claimed that other things were greater than you. But Lord, you showed that you alone are God and that you are worthy of worship and praise, that you are totally holy and that, that your, your judgment and your authority are final. Lord, thank you so much for sending your prophets, um, Elijah and Elisha and Micaiah, who spoke to the people on behalf of you. And thank you so much for that, Lord, that we can see your attitude and your holiness through their actions. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.